0: Thank you very much for joining us. Before we get started on this week's podcast, a really exciting announcement. Peter Hart's book, The Gallipoli Evacuation, is now available to pre-order on our website. That's right, pre-order the book. It'll be out in September, but get your hands on a copy early because anyone who pre-orders the book will also receive... An exclusive behind-the-scenes interview with Peter Hart that includes wonderful audio from Gallipoli veterans telling their story in their own words. It's absolutely extraordinary. In many ways, it's even more exciting than the book, but the book's pretty good too. So get your hands on the book, pre-order it now on our website, and get that exclusive interview that you can download straight away. And then you'll get the book when it comes out in September. So Peter Hart's The Gallipoli Evacuation, now available on the Living History website, which is TV. That website again, livinghistorytv.com. Get your hands on the book. It's going to be something really special.
1: A Living History production.
0: This is the Living History podcast. Broadcasting live across the airwaves. Hello and welcome to Living History. This week marks a very special anniversary in Australian military history in particular. It was the anniversary this week of the Battle of Fromel. Now we remember Fromel as the first action that Australians took part in, the first major action Australians took part in on the Western Front, but also the most costly 24 hours In Australian military history. Just an absolute disaster, the Battle of Fromel. And I thought a perfect opportunity to talk all about it and just remember those poor blokes who were killed or wounded on that terrible day 104 years ago. So joining me to talk about it is battlefield historian Pete Smith. Pete, thanks very much for coming on the show.
1: Good morning, Matt. Thanks so much. Uh, Nice to be with you again.
0: Now, you were saying you were at the battlefield of Fromel just yesterday, mate. What was it like to be there and walking the ground, uh, you know, on the anniversary?
1: Well, it was quiet to start off with for very obvious reasons, um, but uh, always very moving um, whenever I visit from L, which is uh, uh, most uh, weeks during the touring season, but not at the moment. So I hadn't been for uh, well, a couple of months. So it was nice to, to get back onto the battlefield. But uh, yeah, it's um, uh, it was uh, quiet. Which is is interesting as well because it's not always quiet. And uh, the the ploughing, well, not the ploughing, the harvesting had taken place, so it meant we could actually walk out onto the paddocks as well, which is not always uh, easy to do. Sometimes it's ploughed, you can get out there. Sometimes the farmer uh, isn't very happy if he's got his new crops in and seeds in. So it was it was nice and rather unusual to be able to walk right out onto the battlefield and uh, and and, and took some. I took quite a lot of photographs from from angles and directions that, that I wouldn't normally take them from. Um, especially looking back towards VC Corner Cemetery, a very uh, moving little little cemetery, right in the heart of the uh, of, of No Man's Land, in, in fact. So uh, yeah, so it was it was good to be back and uh, and interesting and, and moving to to be there on the 104th anniversary, of course, of the of the battle taking place.
0: Doesn't it always give you a unique perspective of a battlefield when you can get out in the fields? I mean, we we tend to visit battlefields in motorised transport, and we just get out and look at the memorials and the cemeteries, and then back into the car or onto the bus. When you can get out and walk around, it gives it a whole new perspective, doesn't it?
1: It does. Uh, and sadly, it's one of the aspects of, of touring that we're always on fairly tight schedules, moving from A to B. And we like to try and uh, get people out there on to, uh, to walk, walk the ground. Um, at the very least, what I always do, uh, we, we stop the, uh, the coach uh, or, my, or my vehicle, depending on on what type of what size tour it is, on a minibus. And we uh, have a, a walk and discuss vc corner and then we literally walk across the paddock if we can or up the road if not across No Man's land to the german frontline trenches uh, which is now the cobbers memorial park uh, that's a, that allows the people at least to get an idea of that walk across the men so were not walking they were ducking and diving and running but but it uh, it, it really gives you a little bit more of a, of a feel of the battlefield if you could get out on the ground and walk the landscape that the men actually uh, walk themselves on
0: well, speaking of those men, why don't you give us an overview of, of exactly what happened at Frommel 104 years ago?
1: It's a, it's a very interesting and, and terrible battle. I remember many years ago chatting to you, Matt, and saying that you, you didn't, didn't like uh, particularly the, 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 the battlefield and the feel of the, of, the, of the battlefield. And I have to say I understand why. It's, it's because there's, there's nothing laudable there. There's nothing to, to commemorate or celebrate. It, it's such a, a terrible action. So it takes place in the July, 19th and 20th of July of 1916. And it's an attempt uh, by the the, the Hague and the British to uh, try and trick the Germans into believing that there's going to be a serious assault taking place there using the Australian 5th Division and the British 61st Division. Um, And the whole idea is to hold the reserves there uh, the, hold the men there who may be transferred across to the Somme, because of course the Battle of the Somme, uh, is now into its 19th day. It started on the 1st. It's, it's going okay in some areas and it's going terribly, uh, in others. So this is an important, uh, uh, view to be an important way of holding German reserves. So hopefully we can have more success on the, on the Somme battlefield. And interestingly, of course, uh, the Australian, 1st uh, Division is just about to go into, uh, uh, to action on the 23rd of July on the Somme battlefield. So in, 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 in some ways, it's helping the Australians, or it should be, helping the Australians fighting, uh, there's a duty to fight on the Somme battlefield. So so that, that's, that's how it's linked to the Battle of the Somme. And some Sometimes people get a little confused and think it's a lot closer to the Somme Battle than it than, than it is. In fact, it's quite some distance away. Um, you know, it would be over a days, um, well over a days march, and certainly in the transporting men, you couldn't easily transport men from uh, from El across to the Somme battlefield. But that's the idea: is to stop the Germans from from moving men across to the Somme. This is a sad aspect. The Germans were never going to move men from the Somme because they never viewed the battle as being anything other than a feint. In other words, a a trick. It was designed uh, to to trick the Germans, and they recognized that almost immediately. Um, So you have to ask yourself before we discuss the actual action, is wh- why is it taking place? If if everybody is fairly much aware that it's not going to work, it's not doing what it's, what it's supposed to do, why does it take place? Uh, well, the simple answer is, and there is a simple answer, is that the 5th Division had not fought anywhere on the Western Front. It had been raised uh, in Egypt, in that gap between the Gallipoli campaign and the move to the Western Front, and this is going to be its very first action. In fact, it was the last division to arrive in France, and yet it's going to be the first division to uh, to go into action. So there is a, a certain kudos attached uh, from an Australian perspective. Uh, the, the fifth division, the first one to go into uh, go into action. So that's why it goes ahead, really. It's felt that the uh, the division needs to be a horrible, horrible term connected to fo- fox hunting. Bloody. It needs to be bloodied. And this uh, this is a good a place as any. Sadly, it's not a good a place as any. And that becomes very obvious when you're walking the ground. And when you walk on, on that walk from VC Corner across uh, to the, uh, the, the Cobb's Memorial Park, it is as flat as a pancake. It is totally, totally flat. Um, it's a, at sea level. There's, there's The only ridge is well behind the German lines. That's known as the Aubers Ridge. Um, not even part of the objective. In fact, when they, they're not trying to break through, they're just trying to to keep the Germans busy and hopefully hold the German reserves there. So there was no even attempt to get up to the Orbers Ridge. Um, we're, we're not even trying to actually take the village of Fromelle, which is on the Orbers Ridge. It's just taking the German first and second time uh, second uh, lines and keeping the, the pressure on them. Hopefully, hopefully holding reserves and perhaps even bringing some reserves to to stop what is seen as a potential breakthrough.
0: They um, didn't even have uh, proper the- trench lines, did they? There, Pete, because of the nature of the ground. Tell us about this unusual setup for the trenches in the from L region. Yeah,
1: yeah, the, tr- the trenches are extraordinary. I'll just explain something. It's very interesting when you're walking the ground as I do an awful lot here. When I'm actually not, uh, because this is my passion and, and hobby as well as, uh, as as my business. I, I walk the ground here a lot and very unusually when you walk the fields of Framel you find the bullets in the in, in the fields uh, which you don't normally if you imagine you fire a you pull the, the trigger on a rifle your bullet goes whistling across the battlefield if it doesn't hit anybody it goes 3 miles away but on the battlefield, there you find bullets everywhere. And there's a very good reason for that. It's because they're not fighting from trenches; they are fighting from behind walls. Because we're at sea level, because the, the ground is, is waterlogged about three foot below. Sorry, I'm going to use old go three foot below, uh, below the ground level. You're into the water table, so you cannot literally dig trenches. What you have to do is build walls. So six foot high walls or more. Um, sandbags, enormously, enormously thick. I mean, these were, that certainly the German fortifications, enormously well-built. And we'll talk about that in a second. But well-built fortifications, but all sandbags. There's very little concrete. It's just sandbags. Again, concrete, not easy because you're mixing concrete in a waterlogged landscape. It's easier to fill sandbags and, and build your fortifications with sandbags. So we've got walls. That leads to another potential issue. Is that everybody knows where everybody is. If we went to the salients or the Somme where you've got where you uh, you have more trenches or nothing for the, the salients and the fighting from shell hill to shell hill, you're never clear where people are. But here we knew where everybody was with aerial photography, but they also knew where we were. So they knew where our front line what uh, was was based, where the men would jump out with assault from. We knew where the German front line was. We could see it. We knew roughly where their guns were, not, not accurately. Um, but it means that, that there's, no, there's no way you can hide anything. Everybody knows where everybody is during attack. Everybody knows how wide no man's land is. So it's, it's a difficult battlefield. And then with, with little shelter, the only saving grace was because for almost a year there'd been no fighting here. When I say no fighting, no attempt to assault. They'd been fighting in the May of 1915, the, the Battle of the Orbers Ridge, a, a British battle, but nothing since then. So the landscape is, uh, it's green. It's very interesting. When we think of the First World War battlefields, what do we think of? Well, we, we think of mud and, uh, and, uh, and shell holes and craters and, and nothingness. Well, that is not the Battle of Fromel. The Battle of Fromel, the, the, the fields in between the paddocks in between the two lines were green. They had crops growing. They, they had uh, a mixture of uh, bulrushes, uh, canola, uh, uh, wheat, barley, uh, uh, all in, uh, intermingled and, and wild crops, all growing. So there's an element of green. And that means that the men, if you dropped low enough and you kept moving, then you did have an element of cover. And, and interestingly, the first waves, the Australian first waves, Heading towards the what is now the memorial park, uh, did well because they ran and they got through those crops before and lowing the crops before the Germans could get their machine guns operational and uh, and uh, and the riflemen could stand up and open fire. Um. so the Germans did lose a small uh, section, which is now, again, where the Memorial Park is of of frontline during the the initial assault. It's after that that it becomes a nightmare because the Germans know where everybody's coming from and they bring fire to suppress those men trying to uh, cross No man's land.
0: So tell us about that German reaction and what that meant for the Australians and the British troops in the German line.
1: Yeah. So uh, to start off with, the, the guys that fought in there. What do you need when you're holding uh, an enemy? line? Well, you need grenades, you need resupply, and, and that's what they're not going to get. And remember that very few of them got got across. So that you're only talking of handles of small men uh, in, in little groups trying to work together, trying to get reinforcements co- across. And one of the interesting things, and in fact, I only I only read this a few days ago. Is the carrying parties, which are supposed to bring the, the the equipment and the supplies, the grenades and the uh, uh, and the, uh, the, the, the new bullets, the uh, for the rifles and for the machine guns across, their task is to drop them off, go back, bring bring some more up. They didn't. When they got there, if they managed to survive crossing no man's land and they got to the Australian uh, uh, front line within the German uh, uh, trench systems they stayed to help them because there were so few men. But what that meant was there were no men then going back to pick up more supplies to bring them. So constantly they're rummaging to try and find men in the Australian lines to load them up to try and get them across no man's land and it's just leading to more and more casualties Uh, but again less men coming back because some are staying to fight some are being killed so they're not being resupplied in the front line and the Germans put the squeeze on because they are taking very few casualties Uh, the bombardments are ineffective and that's possibly another of the most important aspects is uh, the artillery was, was new to the Western Front this is the Australian artillery of the 5th Division supported by the 4th Division artillery they were also here because they hadn't yet moved to the Somme, they were thought to be not trained well enough to move to the Somme, so that they're left there. Well, there's a clue there: not trained well enough. Well, the artillery, apparently, drop shots—a term that most infantrymen will know—there were there were an awful lot of drop shots dropping in the Australian front lines because the the gunners were not uh, were not well enough trained, had no real idea of what they were they were shooting at because they'd not been given a proper brief. So the artillery barrage, supposedly protecting the Australian infantry, very very poor. To counter that, or to uh, to, as a juxtaposition to that, the German artillery barrage was very good. There's a very good reason for that. The Germans have have been there um, uh, and been facing attacks uh, for over a year. And so they know exactly where everything is. They can see the front lines. They know where they are. They've also got the added advantage of vision from the Orbis Ridge. So they can see the Australian front lines. They have, have plotted and spotted positions, machine gun positions, artillery positions, and so they bring down a very ferocious counter battery fire on the Australian uh, batteries and front line uh, barrage on the Australian front line. So, so the men in the in the German trenches around the Cobbers Memorial Park slowly squeezed from from both sides uh, and and having a really tough time. One of the more important uh, positions on the whole of the battlefield is something called the sugar loaf. Sometimes wrongly described as a large blockhouse, um, uh, uh, giving you the impression that it had some extra height. It didn't. It is just a sandbag position again, but it's in a little salience. In other words, it juts out into no man's land and the fire from the sugar loaf swept obliquely. And we call it enfilade fire across no man's land, and basically caused terrible damage to both the British 61st Division. Because we also have to remember, this is not just an Australian attack. There is a uh, the British 61st Division is fighting on the right of the Australians, and it, it's having actually a, an appalling time with fire from the uh, from the Sugarloaf as well. So the Sugarloaf, an uh, actual key position on the battlefield, not taken. We couldn't get anywhere near it. It was just over 400 metres of, uh, of no man's land to try and get to it. Just a terrible, terrible, uh, 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 time to actually, to try and attack it. And, um, and it meant that those men trapped in no man's land had very little resupply, very little chance of of even getting back. Because of course, that's what they're going to have to do eventually. They're going to have to recross no man's land and try and make it back to their own front line. And uh, this flat landscape with sweeping machine gun fire meant that it seriously was a an, an every man for himself. Um, of course, not everybody even attempts it. Uh, an awful lot of uh, are already being killed or, or already have been captured. Over 400 Australians are actually captured. Uh, during the, the fighting at from where they cannot leave the German lines, are trapped there and eventually will be, will, will be taken prisoner.
0: It must be the worst scenario for infantrymen to be in where they've charged across no man's land, they've survived that initial rush where a lot of their comrades have fallen, they've captured the enemy positions that they were supposed to capture, but then they're trapped there with Germans closing in on all sides and the only way then to safety is that rush back across no man's land to their own line. It just must have been absolutely horrific for the blokes on the ground.
1: I mean, truly horrific. There were some monumental acts of bravery and uh, and courage taking place at this time. And one of them is from the pioneer uh, uh, sections here, who are desperately trying to dig a communication trench, which will run from the old Australian front line to their new front line in the German trenches, because, of course, that's the key. If they can get a communication trench dug across no man's land, then men can, in some element of safety, get up the communication trench to the new front line. They never, it was never completed, but they were like billio to try and get this, this, uh, this new communication trench across no man's land. And in fact, there is a godsend for it because it became one of the ways that the wounded uh, got back, they were able to crawl into these into this, even though it was very shallow communication trench, and, and there the stretcher bearers were attempting to to get the people that couldn't crawl back uh, to their uh, to their own, own front lines. But of course, there's no safety because the Germans have a barrage constantly on their own front line, and for those that are making it independently, zigzagging across no man's land, trying to get back, there is one final terrible issue is that they have to climb that wall because, remember, there is a wall. This wall, which is our own front line, is still a wall, and it means that you've got to climb over that wall to drop back into your uh, your front line. Um, and so very often German snipers were waiting for them and waited for that last as they climbed over the wall, thinking they made it all the way back across, uh, across no-, no man's land. The other thing to remember here is for the majority of these men, uh, this is their first, uh, there, there is an element, you must say, there is an element of men who had fought on Gallipoli because of that splitting of some of the Gallipoli battalions in the 1st and 2nd Division to raise these uh, these battalions of the 5th Division. So there are Gallipoli men here, but the, they're not the, the bulk. The bulk of the men here are have not seen combat. This is their first time of seeing combat. And what an introduction to the Western Front. And I mean, truly, it's terrible.
0: So what was the fate of most of these men that, uh, that, that made it to the German line? What happened to them during the battle?
1: Yep. well, the, the, the bulk of the men that, uh, that, that, that fought, obviously the casualties, 5,533. We better go through that, that figure. It's an easy one to remember. But be aware, that is casualties. So that means that includes the missing. It includes the, the POWs, people that were, uh, were captured. It includes the wounded and, of course, the dead. We use a broad brush for uh, for trying to work out the figures of the dead, and it's about a third. So about a third of the of the five thousand five hundred and thirty three were, were actually killed outright. Uh, but what happens to everybody else? I mean, we'll talk about what happens to the dead in, in a little while. But well, it's a, course of, uh, it's a case of trying to get back. Or surrendering, you know, the Australians, generally speaking, do not like surrendering. But sometimes you're left with no option. So you could surrender in the front line and, and hope for the best, and, and that is a hope because things are not always as we'd like them to be in uh, d- during any war, really. But the First War being no exception, men trying to surrender very, very often were not allowed to. And certainly, there are some accounts uh, that the Germans were not keen on taking prisoners here why well various reasons but one of them of course this is the first time that they're they're actually fighting the australians on the western front in a set piece battle and what you want to do is put the, the fear of god into your enemy uh and if you uh, if you then have a belief that 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 you cannot surrender, you're going to be killed. Then, uh, then, then that's what it does. It puts the fear of God into you if you have, if you have to attack. So that may be why they weren't so keen on taking prisoners, but certainly, there were, there were not as many prisoners taken up from hell as perhaps there should have been. But, uh, uh, again, the 400 men uh, captured. The ones wounded, they will be, uh, they'll try and get through across no man's land and they are still picking up wounded from no man's land three days later. They are still going out there and we, we know about, uh, we'll, Perhaps you don't, so I'll explain. There's a memorial within the Cobbers Memorial Park, and it's of Sergeant Fraser. And Sergeant Fraser is remembered there in the memorial park for going out repeatedly into no man's land during those days uh, and bringing in wounded soldiers against orders. It, w- it was felt to be too dangerous for men to do that. So he's, uh, he's actually disobeying orders, going out there, picking up men and, and bringing, them, bringing them back. If you were got back behind your lines, if successfully recovered, then you you enter the evacuation route. Again, no guarantee you're going to survive because so many, many of the men were so badly hit by machine gun fire, and that is the big killer uh, during this, this battle. Normally, we say it's the artillery, but here it is most definitely machine gun fire which is is cutting the men down. So if you uh, if you survive the actual action, then there's no guarantee and. Uh, over the years i've i've followed the evacuation of many many men almost all the way well, almost all the way to the coast but sadly still not surviving dying, dying days weeks sometimes later of the wounds received that from hell. in fact months later I took a family around many years ago where their relative had died four months later he'd never been able been well enough to leave France and he, he died and he's buried in ruin um, so uh, uh, yeah a, a terrible time and for those uh, for those that are surviving and trying to get off the battlefield. The difficulty, of course, is going to be, how do we get the dead? What do we do with the dead? Do we recover the dead? Do we? How do we recover the men in, the, in, in no man's land of the tracks? Well, to be truthful, some could never be recovered, uh, uh, and some just died there. They, were, they were never got to. But for those that were killed outright, then they lay no man's land. And the difficulty here is, no man's land will always be no man's land. And I mean, for the whole of the Great War, it will be no man's land. There is no attempt ever to take the German trenches from then on so it means that those lines became static they are going to be manned for the whole of the war by units facing each other but no man's land will always be there. So the men that were were left in no no man's land one of the things that was, was done during patrols in the next coming, well years literally but months more importantly patrols were tasked to remove the belongings and identity discs from the men that lay in no man's land. Now that's Great in some ways and not so great in others because it's going to give closure to families because they will then at last know that their relative is 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 dead. And most of them would have suspected within months uh, uh, that their relatives may be dead. Some will not. Some will never give up hope. But for those that uh, their their identities recovered, their private belongings recovered, and in fact sent home in some cases, then this was the confirmation that they're dead. Move uh, fast forward to the end of the war and the battlefield clearances. And these poor guys are still on the surface. They're they're still there. They've never been buried because it was always impossible. But sadly, they they now are going to become part of that enormous uh, unknown. Because their, their, their belongings, their private belongings and their identity disks and their paybooks, in fact. And that's an interesting comment. The Australians attacked at Fremel carrying their paybooks. In later actions, they will not paybooks are handed in before you go into action, but they were carrying their paybooks when they went into action. All of that's been removed from their bodies. So what we end up with is enormous numbers of unknown soldiers being recovered and buried after the war. Of course, there's another issue immediately after the fighting. The Germans are hoping for a truce. I'm sure that many Australians were hoping for some kind of parley, some kind of period when we could clear the battlefield. It's never going to happen. So the Germans are left with another issue. There's an awful lot of dead Australians very close to their front line. And those bodies are starting to cause problems with flies, hideously. And so it's uh, it's felt that something has to be done. And so the the Germans start to bury Australian dead themselves. They remove their men, uh, the men, that they can recover. And, of course, they're not going to risk the living to to bury the dead. So it's only clearing the battlefield that they can get to. And it's that area around the Memorial Park, uh, where the Memorial Park now is, should I say. It's uh, the areas that are very close to the German front line. And it's those Australians that made it into the German trenches. And they are going to be buried uh, by the Germans.
0: Well, that's the the interesting recent part of the story, isn't it, Pete? The uh, the mass grave that was discovered in Fremantle. Tell us about the eccentric Melbourne school teacher Lambis and Glazos, and the uh, the discovery of the uh, the mass grave at Fremantle.
1: Yeah, well, well, Lambis uh, very much. Um, uh, uh, is on, a, I suppose, a small private kind of campaign to, to try and ensure that there's as many Australians, no matter where, not just uh, here on the Western Front, but no matter where, who uh, whose remains are still out there somewhere, are recovered and are eventually buried. Of course, they cannot be taken back to Australia. That uh, that system is still in place. And I think quite rightly that they are buried uh, close to to where they fell. Um, and he was aware that there were many, and, and there are many, many mass graves on the Western Front, um, but he felt it should, shouldn't should be too difficult to locate the mass graves uh, around Fremelov where the uh, the Germans had buried the soldiers. Now, how do we know to start off with? And this is quite a long talk, so I'll try and abbreviate it. We know because um, the Germans... Uh, when they identified some of the soldiers that they buried, they sent their belongings home and, and actually told the Red Cross, that, this is all done by the Red Cross in Geneva, and they told the Red Cross that they were, that they were burying Australian soldiers from the battle from l and these were some of the belongings and some of the names of those that they'd buried. So we knew that there was a, a mass grave, or several mass graves, multiple mass graves, uh, close to Fresnel. Um and uh, Lambis decided that, uh, that, that he, he would uh, do some research. The easiest way of researching is aerial photography. I'm probably simplifying his his research which was was very studious and long-winded but uh, he uh, he located aerial photography which showed this is British aerial photography of the German lines which showed the Germans digging holes digging burial pits effectively from that he then went and used a, a, a basic came out to to France organized uh, that with the farmer and others Use he used a metal detector just on that area, and he found uh, some very important and interesting uh, relics on the surface, which gave him a, a, a really good feel that there was a mass grave below. Um, he then had to persuade the Australian government to fund um, a, a, a test dig because, of course, the Commonwealth War Graves does not get involved until the bodies are actually found. Uh, and the Commonwealth War Graves will, will, will help. In this case, it's going to be a private company that recovers them. But the, that is their job, the Commonwealth War Graves, to, to bury and to create the cemetery to take them, which is, uh, is the new cemetery that we now have just on the outskirts of Fromell, Pheasant Wood. And, um, and that is where, um, having, uh, the test pit was successful. The, um, an, an archaeological company was, uh, uh, brought in to, uh, oversee and, uh, and organize the exhumation of the men there. We eventually get 250 bodies recovered from the, uh, from the mass grave. We probably expected more, but 250 was the, uh, was the number that was, uh, uh, recovered and they are now, uh, uh all lying in pheasant wood. And this is where it gets interesting a DNA profile was taken of every single body as he were buried. So effectively, they were originally all buried as unknown soldiers. But a DNA profile was taken, and then what we have is the first mass use of DNA where uh, adverts placed all over uh, Australia. Have you a relative that died during the battle from Ellen? He's missing? If so, could you come and uh, donate DNA? That is still ongoing, um, and so we have now of the 250 i think it's 160 i think with 250 is that right so right matt yeah i think that's not about a right the it's, it's over i think it's 160
0: yeah
1: yeah yeah. i think it's nearing 160 i think 160 men have now uh, have now been um, identified with the use of dna so it's fanta- very laudable i have to say i'm not so sure if i'd have been quite so happy if we just had a cemetery full of unknown australian uh, 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 soldiers but it works this whole system uh works in this case and i think I expect us, I think, over a period of time, they are still taking DNA. I've taken people around the battlefield in recent months prior to the lockdown who um uh, who, who should have donated dna and hadn't um, and so i think there's still potential for many more to be uh, identified and i hope it will continue but i, I can see a time when of the 250 over 200 will be identified which is just extraordinary it shows you what dna can do when you have a target group and that's the key here a small target group i.e men that died on the 19th australian men that died on the 19th and 20th of july 1916 and have uh, unknown in other words they have no known grave then then yeah come forward if you uh, if you have a, a relative then come forward with your with your dna and uh, you you may be successful as many have been
0: it's just an extraordinary story and i should say if you're listening to this that about a year ago i did an, a, a full interview with lambas and glazos about the fromel story and it's absolutely extraordinary the lengths he went to to convince the government that they should dig and to to just never give up, and he's now doing that in other battlefields around the world. So it's an extraordinary story. So go back and listen to that interview with Lambus about the Battle of Fromel. Pete, you mentioned at the top of the interview, you mentioned walking the ground, and obviously this is something that I think is essential, and I know you agree with me that getting out and actually walking in the footsteps of the men is essential. Just talk to me about walking the ground at Fromel because it is an interesting battlefield. There are a couple of very interesting memorials there. Just tell us about that experience of walking the ground.
1: It is. Uh, um, I think it's probably, I have to say, it's probably, if not my favourite battlefield to, to walk, because it is so very, very visible. Everything is visible. And so long as you know which way you're looking and you have a, a good a good map um, or, or the or information or a guide, in fact, with you, then... then it, it, it's all there. It, it's it's not been built upon. It's still exactly as it was. The the farms are even in the same places. The villages have not really grown in the area. It, it, it's exactly the same. There's no kind of planting of woods that spoil your view or anything. So you can you can literally start in the Australian frontline positions. And there's um, there's a little uh, stream called the I think it's called a Lays. I, I'm not I know it's called a Lays. I'm just not quite sure how you pronounce it. I suspect it's probably Lay. But um, the little stream, uh, sometimes described as a river, it's, it's a big ditch, really. Is what it is. It's a drainage ditch because, of course, this, this landscape needs drainage ditches to keep the water flowing. So you can start there. And, and that, that was in some areas just in front of the Australian lines. Um, um, in, in other areas, it's, it's just behind. So uh, it's uh, an interesting place to start. And you can literally walk up the road, as I say, when the plowing's uh, being done or or when the seeds are are not in or when it's just been harvested, as it was yesterday. You can walk across that battlefield and and you get a real, real sense of what it was like. I also, when I have student groups especially, I, I go into the VC corner cemetery, a very, very moving cemetery because it is in no man's land, just in front of the Australian frontline positions. And it's got walls around this and those walls are, I suppose, four foot high. And I get my student groups to, to crouch down below, below the, below the walls as if they're in the, uh, the frontline trenches. And then to stand up and imagine they were going to climb over the wall and then jump down into no man's land and head off towards the, and it's chilling. It is really chilling when I, I literally blow a whistle and, and get to stand up and imagine they're climbing over over the wall and it, it really makes the hairs on the back of your neck uh, stand up. Um, and then off we go, and we, uh, when we can, we form a line and we just walk across the uh, across those paddocks towards the uh, the German lines. If you raise your eyes, you can actually uh, see the flags uh, with the uh, uh, the Australian flag and the French flag flying side by side with Sergeant Fraser there and the wounded soldier over his shoulder. Um, in front of you and beyond it in the distance on top of that ridge that is very difficult to make out, but you eventually can, can, can just about see that ridge. Uh, and, uh, you can see the, the church of, uh, of from If you look slightly right, you're looking to Orbers. Um and for the British it was known as the uh the, the their battle was known as the fighting of the Orbers Ridge, and that is what the ridge is known. It's the Orbers Ridge, it links the two villages. And there you, you can you can see it in front of you on the uh on the uh horizon. It's only twenty-five meters above sea level. So just twenty-five meters above sea level. It's a little blip in the landscape, but an important blip for the gems. And so on we go walking across. Um, if you have the time, you can walk all the way into Fromel through the Cobbers Memorial Park, uh, past a little private memorial to a, a British officer who was lost there in 1915, pra- past Sergeant Bramble's memorial, a fighter pilot, overlap lapping history, a fighter pilot uh, uh, sergeant who was uh, shot down in his Spitfire in uh, 1941, and then into Fromel itself, and to the very, very... Um, uh, lovely important and interesting museum that's now being created uh, in, in from el um, and so uh, we can go and have a look at that and then walk into the town into the, ch- into the church itself if you have more time you can go and look at uh, where hitler said there's a bunker where hitler said so you can visit the bunker and you can walk up onto the top of the ridge um, and look back from the top of the ridge from the Arbers ridge and look back across to the battlefield itself so walking is oh you can spend a day. a day. It could probably spend more than a day there, but uh, a day walking, crisscrossing the battlefield and, and looking at various various aspects of it. The one thing you can't get to is uh, to that sugar loaf because it is slap bang in the middle of a paddock. So we can't get to it uh, unless, uh, like yesterday, I was lucky. Now, I couldn't even get to it yesterday. I got nearly to it and then the crops changed and they hadn't harvested where I wanted to be. So I didn't quite get to where it was. And it is quite difficult to point out. In fact, I had a request yesterday of somebody said, Pete, could you send me a picture of the sugar loaf? So I've got, in aimed the camera in the right direction and it's over there somewhere, but it is just a little difficult to actually plot exactly unless you've got something like linesman, which is a, uh, a very technical bit of kit that you can load up onto a, a, a piece, um, an iPad or something and, and, uh, and actually plot exactly where it is. But without that, a little difficult to spot exactly where the sugar loaf, uh, uh, was.
0: The couple of times I've managed to get to the Sugarloaf when I've been at Fromell, the way that I knew I was there was because of the German machine gun cartridges that were scattered around on the ground when I arrived. So that was a fair indicator that I was in the heart of that uh, that, uh, deadly German defensive position.
1: It's fascinating, Matt, isn't it? You would think that with uh, you know over 100 years of ploughing, that they, they would be dispersed and, and moved, and they're just not. I think the, the furrows just fold them one way, then they fold them the other way, then they fold them back again, and they just don't go anywhere. And in fact, so funny enough, um, my, my, my little lad, who's, uh, who's five, he picked up uh, three altogether, three cartridges altogether, all German, all fired uh, when we were doing that walk across to where the sugarloaf was. So we'd obviously crossed through another German uh, position where there'd been something machine gun or a rifleman firing away. Um, and that's one of the other slightly disturbing and some people do find it disturbing I find it fascinating but there are a lot of artefacts on that battlefield because of that very reason because people were not removed for a long time from the battlefield and because it was static for the whole of the war then the landscape is fairly saturated in relics uh, 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 from uh, spent rounds and uh, and cartridges Uh, and the day-to-day belongings of the soldiers that fought and died there are, are commonly brought to the surface uh,
0: during the plowing season and sadly human remains as well you it's not unusual for mel to find you know a thigh bone or a you know just obviously not whole skeletons but just fragmentary parts of human beings which is probably the most confronting thing you can find on a battlefield
1: it is, it is, and the one that I, uh, the most common ones are the smaller bones, so the toes and fingers you see quite often, but teeth. Uh, they give me the E B G because I have to say, having walked the battlefield for many, many years, teeth, I don't like teeth, um, and sadly they survive because they're small and they don't see it. Teeth are one of one of nature's kind of almost indestructible uh, things. So you uh, yeah, you you find them there. it's very very very, very sad. It, it's an interesting. I'm just going to shoot off on a complete tangent. The Commonwealth war graves did not recover fragmentary remains for many many years. That, that, that's not what they did. Uh, if if fragmentary remains were found in a, a paddock that's being ploughed, then they were not recovered. Uh, and they've just started doing it. Um, you can, you can now collect fragmentary remains and they are, are creating little graves uh, all over, over the battlefield which are being used for burying fragments of people uh, in the past. And it, and it just says, I can't remember the wording exactly on it. In fact, you may have seen it, Matt. I'm not sure. There's one in Polygon Wood. They just created one in Polygon, uh, in Butts New British Cemetery. In Butts New British Cemetery at Polygon Wood, there is now a little grave uh, that, that, that says, now, I'm not going to quote it because I'm not sure. It's something like fragmentary remains or whether that effect.
0: Just extraordinary, isn't it? That's the most the most confronting part of a battlefield when you find those little pieces of what was once once a human being. And on on that subject, Pete, why why does Fromell still speak to us after all this time?
1: We haven't thought about this, And of course, there is an, an aspect of this that that perhaps we should mention that, that obviously this is perceived by a lot of Australians as as uh and with an elements of truth, uh, a bad British leadership here, uh, and it is. There's a lot of very, very bad decision making going on here. This this battle should not have, have taken uh, taken place. And I, I just scribbled down actually some notes last night. Uh, this gives you an idea of how this is. I mean, this is in the greater picture of the Western Front. This is a tiny, tiny, tiny part, and it's and the great Battle of Somme is taking place. It is literally the side side action. Uh, going on, so it's it's not important. I know I know losses are appalling. You know the the worst losses in uh, twenty four hours uh, in British in uh, sorry in Australian military history, uh, but uh, but in the greater picture, it's it's a tiny a- aspect of the fighting. So I just quickly scribble this down. Uh, this is when this is being planned, uh, and it's uh, and it's basically a chap called Haking that is that is uh, the, the instigator and, and designer, along with uh, Monroe, who is his boss effectively and uh, and it goes up to higg and he and higg kind of approves it to start off with and then higg because because of he, he perceives it may not be doing anything it may not actually work it may not hold the german reserves there so higg's headquarters before the battle suggests cancelling it we then get um some bad weather uh, and and haking who has not actually cancelled it then thinks well we better postpone it at the very least then monroe who is haking's boss advocates that it should be cancelled because he perceives that now with the bad weather and everything uh, and that Hague has suggested that it perhaps wasn't any point. Monroe then says, yeah. And then, when they're just about to cancel it, Hague comes back again, or Hague's headquarters comes back again and says, actually, we now think it might be a good thing to proceed because we can perceive that the Germans are just about to do a counterattack on the Somme, so perhaps it's a good idea. So it's wishy-washy, even in the policy of whether it should take place or whether whether it shouldn't. Uh, So... I suppose that's what we should remember to start off with, is bad planning, bad preparation. Um, Those terrible losses, 5,533, I'm going to say it again, only because I can remember it straightforward. Um, now, we should remember those are, are, are appalling losses. Worst twenty four hours in Australian military history, or Australian history, really. Uh, and uh, we should re- remember all those men that, that that were lost. They're they're part of many, many more who are going to be lost. But you know, just twenty four hours of of just horror. Uh, really, uh, it's the destruction of the fifth division in its first action. You know, the fifth division will not be ready for months and months to go back into to action anywhere. So here it is. Uh, you, know, you can imagine all that effort, that that time and effort in the training of them, in the gathering of the men, in in preparing them to come to the Western Front, and bringing them from Egypt to the Western Front, and just squandered uh, in in their in their very first action. I have to say the same for the the, uh, the British 61st Division. Not as many casualties by by any means. Um, and I'm just going to just leap back to the fighting itself, and that's partly due to a, a difference in the attacking. Uh, how they attacked. I've talked about those walls in the, uh, in the, in the frontline trenches. Well, for Australians, they climbed over the walls. They went over the walls, climbed up scaling ladders over the parapet into no man's land and off they went. The, the British didn't do that. The British decided to cut gaps in their, in their parapet. They created what are called sally ports uh openings in the parapet, that the men rushed out in small groupings and then spread out. Now because of that, the, the Germans could see those gaps and they they mowed them down as they tried to get out through their gaps. And the British attack actually stalled and then stopped uh, and then was cancelled so that any more should 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 assault. Now that didn't happen to the Australians, A, because they didn't get the information properly, but but B, because the nature of the way that they were assaulting by climbing over the walls meant that, that actually was a little bit more su- successful. So the British stopped me- meant they have far less casualties, uh, uh, thankfully, than, uh, than the Australians. So back to your initial uh, question, why should we remember it? Well, we should remember it for the terrible losses. We should remember it for the terrible bravery of the men that, that you have to say, because of what, what is going on, subsequent waves of men trying to cross no man's land fairly much knew what was going to happen to them, and yet still they went. So we should remember that bravery. We should, should remember... Sergeant Fraser, as we do, because he's commemorated by that memorial uh, uh, in the uh, in the memorial park. Um, he's also, as a matter of interest, his uh, his memorial was recast, and you'll find him in, in in Melbourne as well. On the way to the uh, to the, the Shrine in Melbourne, there is a second uh, casting of uh, of him carrying his wounded comrade across uh, across No Man's Land. Um, so we should remember that bravery. Um, uh, we should remember him, and um, and we should also realize that we need more planning. And I think that's what I take from it uh, more than anything else. It is part of this learning curve, a horrible, steep learning curve that has to take place during the First World War that will eventually lead to the successful attacks of 1918. But this attack is, is appalling. Remember, I think one of the other things that you have to remember, which I find fascinating, is we are very close to a lot of changes taking place, and they will take place on the Somme. Night attacks, Creeping barrages, tanks, um, men not attacking in, in lines, attacking in artillery formation, which means basically an, an arrowhead. So all of these are going to start to take place during the Somme fighting, but we're just too early. None of them have been developed yet properly. They're being developed and, and none of them will be be used. We haven't mentioned the attack time, 6.15 in the evening on a beautiful summer's day. It's not going to go dark. I was just reading an account that said it went dark two hours later, but it doesn't. It doesn't go dark till ten o'clock. So it's four hours. Four hours of bright sunshine trying to cross No, no Man's Land, and that's what should be remembered: is, is is that grit of men going across in bright sunshine, not dark, not half light, not gloom. This is bright sunshine on a on a beautiful July morning in uh, in nineteen sixty. Uh, terrible.
0: Well, Pete, it's it's an important battle to remember. And, uh, you know, for all those reasons you mentioned, it's really important we don't forget. And, and, and on this week, every year, we remember those uh, brave souls who fought and died at Fremel. But just thank you so much for joining us and painting that picture. It's been really wonderful. And it's, I always love getting on the show. And we'll definitely get you back again in the future to talk about more Battlefields. No, it's a pleasure, Matt. Um,
1: it's a shame you went with me yesterday when, when we walked the ground. It would been nice to have had you uh, walking the ground with
0: me. Well, I can't tell you how much I'm looking forward to actually getting back to the battlefields when we're allowed to travel. It'll be a while off yet, but, uh, but as, soon as, we, uh, as soon as we're able to, uh, I'll be back over there, mate, for, uh, to walk some battlefields and share a cold beer with you.
1: Brilliant. Looking forward to it.
0: Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review for the podcast and visit livinghistorytv.com for more great history content.